Gracious God, again, we come to that gracious throne where we are welcome, where we belong, where we have many privileges in our adoption through Jesus Christ. And so we ask, help us tonight, O Lord. Help us attend upon our King's every word. Help us recognize his authority speaking herein. Help us indeed have the very grace which was commended in Mary who sat at his feet and chose the one necessary thing. O Lord, we we pray that you would indeed defeat in us a Martha spirit. O Lord, quiet us and even testify to us that we need everything that you have to say and help us receive it. Help us believe it. Help us indeed, O Lord, be reformed by it. O Lord, fill us with light. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? 
so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed away, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Please turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 1. The reading here is verse 14 through 18. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Beloved, let me start by asking you a question tonight. Do you need what Moses needed? Are you as needy as old Moses? We heard Moses in our Old Testament reading boldly pleading with God. He had been called to lead the people of God through the wilderness to the promised land. Yet he was not a man proud with self-confidence. He was not a man with a natural optimism or bravado. Moses was anxious. That's what he was. And he was most anxious about God. Does God really favor him? Will God really be with him all the way? All the way through the life which God had called him into? Moses says, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He is basically saying, you must go with us or else do not bother sending us along this narrow road up to the promised land. Wonderfully, the Lord agrees to do what Moses has asked of him. Verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. What a condescension. What a stooping down to a child who is loved. Yahweh says, I will do it, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. After hearing that from the Lord, Moses gets bolder. 
Please show me your glory, is his next request. He wants a revelation of God that goes beyond all previous revelations. If he can see God's glory, he will know beyond doubt. He will know beyond his doubts that he has God's favor. Because God does not reveal his glory to just anyone. Only to those in closest fellowship with him. So Moses needs these assurances. Moses wants more than a sign. Moses wants more than a promise. Moses wants God himself. Moses wants God with him. Do you and I need that much of God to fulfill our divine calling in this world? To live by faith, to endure all the way to the end, to keep the good confession until faith gives way to sight. Do we need as much or perhaps more of God than even Moses to be with us? The answer to the question, of course, is not found by looking at our anxieties. Some of us are very anxious about our calling as children of God in the world. Others of us are not anxious at all. That may be good. It may not be good. Either way, we ultimately do not learn how much of God we need by the conflicts in our own souls or the lack thereof. We learn how much of God we need by how much of himself God has given. That's how we learn. And here's the wonderful truth we learn tonight. God has not just given his wisdom to us, not just his creation to us, not just his church to us, and not just his law to us, but God has given his very self to us. This is how much of God we need to make our pilgrimage through the wilderness of this world to our promised home in heavenly glory. Beloved, you cannot make it home to glory without being assured that God is with you, that God is in you. Tonight he comes to give you that assurance. God was uniquely present with Moses in his pilgrimage of obedience and faith, and God is present also with every single believer, but he is present even more so with us than Moses. As you live in Christ, you discover that Christ lives in you. God is so present to the believer now through his Son who has taken on our flesh that we no longer need the exterior apparatus of worship that the Israelites needed. It all can be put away in a box in grandma's closet, never to be brought out again. That's how present Christ is with us, in us, leading us as our pioneer on the pilgrim road to heavenly glory. And speaking of glory, God has not just showed his glory to Moses. He has shown his glory to all of us believers. So we too can know we have God's favor. So we too can know we have a special claim of fellowship with God that he himself wants us to claim. In John 1.14, we hear just how near God has come to us. 
In other words, we hear just how much we need of God. And the word became flesh, the text says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to see what John is doing in these verses. He is looking back to that scene in Moses' life from Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, and he is recalling how Moses wanted God's presence. He is recalling how Moses wanted to see God's glory. John is recalling how Moses wanted to be assured of God's favor. But John recalls all of this to tell us we have received all that Moses wanted and more. And we have received it in the eternal Son of God through his incarnation. You've heard the word incarnation perhaps a lot in recent days. Incarnation literally means to be embodied in the flesh. The eternal word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, became flesh. He became man while remaining fully God. The eternal son became what he had never been, a union of Godhead and manhood. Fully the one and fully the other. Beloved, this is an unspeakable humility in the very God who rules all things. Two natures in one person forever. But the description to receive our chief attention is the phrase, and dwelt among us. This is a most sublime description of the incarnate word. He dwelt among us, verse 14. John is not simply saying the eternal God started sharing earthly space with us. He certainly did that. But John is saying the eternal God came closer to us in covenant fellowship than he ever has before. The word dwelt is the translation of the Greek verb skenao. It means to pitch a tent or to set up a tabernacle. A literal translation of this phrase would be the word pitched his tent among us. In fact, the exact same Greek verbal construction that we find here for dwelt among us is translated in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 13, 12, describing that Abram pitched his tent near Sodom. Or excuse me, not near Sodom, but he pitched his tent. It was Lot who went to Sodom. Another translation that's found in the Lexham English Bible is the word took up residence among us. Beloved, this is a verb, skenao, that only John uses of all the writers of the New Testament. He uses it five times. Once in this book and several in the book of Revelation. You see, John knows that many of his readers of this gospel would be Greek-speaking Jews who grew up hearing the Old Testament being read from its Greek translation, which we call the Septuagint or the LXX, the 70. They, the Old Testament Jews who knew Greek, they would have connected the work skenao to its familiar noun, skene, 
which is the term for tabernacle. They would have heard that word hundreds of times reading the Old Testament scriptures. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure where God met with Israel before the temple was built. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place where God revealed himself and his holy will. The tabernacle and the tent of meeting that we read about in Exodus 33 are the same place. After God delivered his people from Egypt, he did not will to remain far off from his people. He said to them, you are dwelling in tents. I will dwell in a tent among you. In Exodus 25, 8, the Lord tells Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God was openly demonstrating his zeal for the terms of his covenant of grace with his people, which are these terms, right? I will be your God and you will be my people. And so they would understand how to exposit the terms of that covenant of grace. The Lord set up a tent among their tents. I am yours. You are mine. We shall not be separated. But as much as the tabernacle revealed the presence of God, beloved, it also revealed the distance of God. Because of man's sin, God did not move among the camp. He did not even dwell in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. In fact, he stayed hidden within the Holy of Holies which was a tent within a tent, within a courtyard. He could only be approached through a blood sacrifice and only then through a priest. Even when God visited with Moses at the tent of meeting, his holy presence even then was marked by distance. He only appeared in a pillar of cloud and all the people had to watch from a distance standing at the doors of their own household tents. But now John says, in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. In Jesus Christ, the eternal God has come out from the holy of holies. He has come out from his tabernacle without abandoning his tabernacle. A body becomes his dwelling place. A body becomes his tent of meeting. A body becomes his temple. Jesus Christ is now the place where sinful men meet with the almighty God. In Jesus Christ, we have the fullest revelation of God's own zeal to be with his people. But why are we not then consumed? Why was this sinful world not set on fire the moment his highness, his holiness, his majesty set his feet upon the globe? Why are we not consumed? Because this son of God in the flesh also came to be the lamb of God. He did not come this first time to consume us for our sins. He came to be consumed himself for our sins. He came to lay down on the altar of God's holy justice, the bloody cross. 
He took away our sins so we can be brought near, so we can be forgiven, so we can be comforted, so we can be made children of God, so we can be assured we are not alone on this pilgrim trail, which is so narrow that goes all the way to the glory of heaven. And this is what John means when he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses begged, please show me your glory. Moses wanted to bind God to a special fellowship where God would have disclosed something of his true nature just to Moses. Amazingly, God did allow Moses to see a limited measure of his glory. Exodus 33:22 tells us God hid Moses in a cleft of the rock, saying, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." Then God passed by him with his back turned to Moses, and as he passed by, the Lord himself began declaring what it was that Moses could not fully see. And this is in the next chapter, Exodus 34. The Lord says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34, 6. That's what the Lord starts saying as he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock. The glory of God is indeed all of God's burning brightness of holy purity, and it is all of God's power and transcendence. But at its blazing core, the glory of God is who God is. It is not a worldly, fleshly power of splitting a rock and having all the pieces of the rock fall down into the form of a Ming vase. Notice that I said vase. That's how you say expensive. That is not the glory of God doing the tricks of a superhero. The glory of God is all that God is. And as John says later in his first epistle, God is love merciful and gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Somewhere on the earth in 2024, it is so likely that somebody in their 60s or 70s is going to be overwhelmed by the glory of God for the first time in their life. And do you know how that being overwhelmed will manifest itself? That they will have discovered to their great joy, an irresistible pleasure, that God, whom they scorned for 60 years, has been slow to anger with them. And he saves them next year. He gives them a new heart next year. He washes all their guilt away next year. And he makes them a useful and fruitful servant for the next eight years, and then they die and go to his side. It will be the glory of God 
that they are tasting. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Moses saw a fraction of God's glory. It made his fears smaller. It made his courage greater. He had been brought into a unique fellowship with God. But let us understand, in Jesus Christ, the only Son from the Father, we have seen more than Moses. Now, you're not supposed to go brag about that to Moses. But, beloved, we have seen more. We have seen the fullness of his glory. Jesus is the full display to us of God's grace and truth. Jesus performing our obedience in our human flesh, being crucified for our sins in our human flesh. He is the physical reality and fulfillment of all God spoke to Moses. If you know who Jesus is, you have also been welcomed into a unique fellowship with God. What could you possibly now fear in living for God? What limits could you possibly now set upon your courage to obey and endure? If you know who Jesus Christ is, understand this. God has come to you just like he came to Moses on that mountain. But instead of showing you his back, he has shown you his son. Do you realize how special and how wonderful and how privileged you are to know who Jesus Christ is. God has taken you into his secret fellowship. He has shown you his glory. John says, down in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That phrase is, That phrase, the only God who is at the Father's side, is speaking of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he is the Logos who was with God. In verse 14, the only Son from the Father, he is called. Now in verse 18, he is the only God who is at the Father's side. But he has also been at our side, in our flesh, He has pitched his tent among us to know and to understand Jesus Christ, to receive him as the full revelation of God's glory is to have seen God. And if God has shown himself to you and you have not been consumed, you are greatly blessed. It means your sins have been forgiven. It means that you have been marked as a son, a child of God, In John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Beloved, think about that. Think about that, boys and girls. If anyone ever asks you to speak one word that describes the eternal, the almighty God, you can say Jesus. Think about that. You can open up your Bibles and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and discover how the eternal, the infinite, the unchangeable God lives among men. 
you see it all in Jesus. Discover how Almighty God relates to the sick. Discover how Almighty God relates to the poor. Discover how Almighty God relates to the self-righteous. Discover how Almighty God relates to sinners. Discover how Almighty God relates to women. Discover how Almighty God relates to children. Discover how Almighty God relates to kings and heads of state. You see it. There's nothing left out. You see it in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that the Pharisees, the most outwardly religious men of ancient Israel, thought they knew God, thought they had perceived the glory of God. Then Jesus came among them and he said to them, You don't know me. You don't know my father. You have twisted the ancient words of my father, and now my father's living word is among you, and you wish to kill me. Oh, how desperate we sinners are for a true revelation of God and his glory. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. Not only a revelation of glory, but a revelation of God's zeal to dwell with us, to be among us, to go with us, to never depart from us, to never forsake us. It has always been God's determination to dwell with his people. But in sending his son, that determination reaches its culmination. This is what John is saying in verse 16 and verse 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, grace upon grace, is literally grace instead of grace. John is not so much talking about a stacking up of multiplied graces. He is talking about the advancement from one stage of grace to a next fuller stage of grace. The first stage of grace is the law given through Moses. The law was a ministry of grace that flowed from the fullness of Christ before his incarnation. Through the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the rituals, the festivals, through the law, God's people received a revelation of God's grace. For in the law, God said, I want to dwell with you sinful people. I want to dwell with you stiff-necked people. I do not wish to abandon you. And so God made provision in his law, for his sinful people to approach him, to worship him, to hope in him, to know that he was determined to keep a covenant with them and be their God. That's what the priesthood and the tabernacle and later the temple was all about. But the grace of the law was a shadow, not a substance. It was a forecast, not the fullness. In the law, man had an an image of things to come, But in Jesus, the image has come. The reality has come. Jesus is the final stage, the full stage of grace. He completes everything the law started. He perfects obedience in human flesh. He satisfies the penalty for our sins in human flesh. He sustains all fidelity to God in human flesh. And so now through him, through faith in Jesus Christ, we come into the fullness of our title and destiny as the children of God. And of all that, 
And of all that, we come to this final question. If God is determined to dwell with us, to go with us through the world of wilderness wandering, to give us courage and faith, where is he now dwelling? On the night of his arrest, our Lord Jesus said, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's John 14, 19. Then he said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is our Lord Jesus saying? He is saying that if he remained upon the earth after making satisfaction for sin, his humanity would limit his presence to a local place. But if he goes to the Father, then he and his Father can both come and dwell with us through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know? that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And a verse that is under-read, under-memorized, and under-thought of, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Beloved, we cannot be God's temple unless we have been united to Christ, who is God's temple. And so we have, by faith, by a faith union with Christ. We are the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. Christ dwells in us. As Christ has been united to us in his flesh, we have been united to Christ by his spirit. How does God prove today that he is dwelling with us? Now the spirit of Christ keeps testifying to our spirit that our sins are forgiven because of Christ. That we are loved with an everlasting love because of Christ. The spirit keeps testifying to our spirit that nothing shall separate us from the love of God because of Christ. The spirit keeps testifying to our spirit that upon our death, our souls are immediately brought to the bosom of the Father because of Christ. And at the end of the age, our bodies shall be raised and we shall dwell in the new heavens and the new earth because of Christ. The Spirit continually is testifying to our spirits that because of Christ, all these things belong to us because Christ is dwelling in us and we in him. In other words, the living Christ keeps refreshing and renewing us with the glory that is full of grace and truth. Now, beloved, I come to my concluding remarks. I know very much that it is Christmas Eve, and every now and then I think 
it's good to hear what we're about to hear, even if some might not think it's good. What you have heard tonight is a simple, brief exhortation and exposition of God's word. It is very common in Christmas Eve services of the churches of Jesus Christ to enjoy pageantry and pomp instead of the word of God. This kind of service tonight is sometimes very disappointing to people because it lacks the pageantry that we have come to love at this time of the year. And we, of course, are not opposed as a church of Jesus Christ to singing the great hymns of the advent and incarnation of our Savior. But, beloved, we are opposed. Well, let me say it this way to be fully honest. I am opposed. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am opposed to letting pageantry and pomp soothe us. I am much more in favor of preaching with some rigor the word of God, letting our king speak to his people. Beloved, this is what we need more than pomp, more than pageantry. Let your hearts not be so easily trained that you have a distaste for the word of God and a great hunger for the pageantry of men. And so we have prayed for you, even tonight, that you will perhaps have heard more than you think you have heard of the word of God, and it will yet flower spirit what you have heard about Jesus Christ. For he alone is the strength of the soul. Pageantry does not sanctify. O Lord, John 17, he prayed, sanctify them for your word is truth. 